Hi, my name's Andy Chamberlain. I'm a writer and creative writing tutor, and you are listening to the Creative Writers Tool Belt, the podcast that gives you practical, accessible advice that you can apply straight away to your own writing. If you're a subscriber, you'll find that you've got two episodes this week instead of one, and that's because I've also released a bonus episode, which is a conversation with British astrophysicist turned science fiction writer Alistair Reynolds. The audio quality is not quite as good as I would normally like to give you, but we had a great conversation, and I hope you'll enjoy it. In this episode, I'm going to look at story structure, and I want to explore how we can apply some aspect of these theories to improve our writing. So I'm going to start by spending a few minutes looking at some different story theories. Now, normally I try to avoid too much theory in the creative writer's tool belt, but bear with this, please, because I think it's worth spending a few minutes just getting our head around some of this stuff. People have been thinking about plot and story structure for a long time. The Greek philosopher Aristotle was writing about the theory of story way back in 330 BC, and a lot of what he was saying then is still useful and relevant to us today. Now, he was writing specifically in the context of tragedy as a performance art, but his observations are useful to us across the whole spectrum of creative writing. Part of Aristotle's advice to us is this. A good plot has a beginning which connects to a middle, which connects to an end. And the elements of a plot should all tie together. And the best plots contain elements that might surprise the reader initially, but which on reflection will seem inevitable and understandable. Now, all of this still works for us today, which is pretty impressive given the fact that he was writing it 2,300 years ago. And that should tell us that at least some of the essential elements of a great story never change. So let's fast forward to the 19th century and to the German playwright and novelist Gustav Freytag. He built on some of Aristotle's ideas and said that stories start with a kind of event, something that gets things going, and then the action rises and increases until the story reaches a climax. Then after that, the tension winds down and the story reaches a resolution. These phases of story are often represented illustratively as a pyramid, with the event that starts things off, sometimes referred to as the inciting incident, being at the base of the pyramid. From there, the rising tension of the story is represented by the rising edge of the pyramid. The climax of the story is represented by the apex, and then the declining tension and resolution by the falling edge of the pyramid back down to ground level. And when you think about a story being a start, a middle with lots of action, and then a finish, Freytag's theories make sense. Today, this structure is still advocated, albeit in slightly amended forms, by some of the foremost thinkers in story theory. So, for example, Robert McKee, the guru of story and script writing, talks about story structure as the inciting incident or the primal cause for what follows, then progressive complications, then crisis, climax and resolution, which is pretty close to Freytag's analysis. There are some other examples of story which approach things very differently. For example, Dramatica theory has a different focus. This theory sees a story as an argument presented by the author to the reader, and it's an argument in which all viewpoints should be presented. The author sets out their argument by telling the story. If they leave out anything from the argument, the story appears to have plot holes. If they present a biased view of the argument, the story appears to have inconsistencies or is not authentic. The resolution of the story brings the resolution of the argument. Now, Dramatica theory tells us that stories have a personality and a psychology. It's as if the story becomes a person in its own right. So how is this story person developed? Well, there's a main character 
and they have their own worldview and their own way of approaching things. And then that main character is brought into contact with another character called the influence character, and they present a different way of doing things. And this influence character need not be the antagonist in the story. It just has to be somebody who challenges the lead character or main character in the way they think and go about things. So we have these two characters, two ways of doing things, two different worldviews, and these worldviews collide with each other, and this conflict is part of the arena in which the argument is worked out. And the Dramatica website gives us an example of this. If you think about the first film that was made in the Star Wars franchise, Luke Skywalker is the main character, whilst the influence character is not Darth Vader, but Obi-Wan Kenobi, the person who challenges so many of Luke's suppositions. It's Obi-Wan Kenobi's different view of the world that stretches Luke and also starts an argument about how to deal with the bigger issues that are opening up before him. And our Dramatica theory is an interesting approach to story, and I'm not pretending that I can do it justice just in the time I have here. If it piques your interest, you can follow it up at the website address that I'll give you at the end. The last approach to story I want to have a look at is that presented by Stephen King in his book On Writing. In this book, King envisages the author as a kind of archaeologist and the story as a fossil, fully formed and in the earth, just waiting to be excavated. Our job as writers is to dig it out as carefully and perfectly as possible to preserve its integrity. Now, I'm fairly persuaded by this theory, as I am by quite a lot of what Stephen King says. Part of that is because I think he just talks a lot of sense. And part of it is because if you've sold over 350 million copies of your books, you must know something about writing. Now, my own conclusion on all of this is that there's no one right theory of story. A lot of these theories of of story reveal some insight about the way stories work. And a lot of them overlap in terms of what they're saying. So that's all fine as far as the theory goes, but what useful tools can we get from all of this to help us do the job of creative writing? Well, I want to present four techniques based on these theories or a mix of these theories. First, if dramatic a theory is right and a story is like a person, then the moment when our reader meets that person for the first time is critical to the success of that story. If you think about it, first impressions do count whether we're meeting a person or a story for the first time. Think about all of the assessments that you might make about someone when you first meet them. Some of those assessments will be just facts or information, but some will include a value judgment about the person. So in the first moments of meeting somebody for the first time, we'll try to assess their age, their sex, physical proportions, their dress sense. As we begin to talk to them, we might want to assess their personality, tone of voice, and we'll be making immediate judgments about that person in terms of whether we'll like them or find them interesting, perhaps even approve of them. Now think about all this in the context of story. This is why the first sentence or first few lines of a story are so important. It's the literary equivalent of making a first impression. How can we use this insight? We use it by presenting the best aspects of our story in terms of some of the dimensions of writing, character, plot, setting and voice to capture and enthrall the reader in that first moment. Think about the dimensions of your story and make sure that at least some of those dimensions are presented in the opening words. So to give you an example, when Jane Austen starts her novel Pride and Prejudice with the words, it is a truth universally acknowledged that a single man in possession of a good fortune must be in want of a wife. When we read that first sentence, we're immediately reassured by the fact that Austen has confidently presented the setting of the novel and the voice of her story. Let's take another example. George Orwell starts his classic novel 1984 with this sentence. It was a bright, cold day in April and the clocks were striking 13. 
Now, in this sentence, Orwell has intrigued us by placing the familiarity of a bright, cold April day next to the bizarre fact that the clocks were striking 13. And he's told us something about the setting as well. And if this story was a person, we might well be intrigued enough to find out more about them just from this introduction. So story theory tells us how important first lines are. And if you want to know a bit more about this and how to create a compelling first line, check out the last episode. That's episode 30 of the podcast where I dealt with this issue in some more detail. The second tool that we can develop focuses on the fact that there is a lot of emphasis in these story theories on the inciting incident. And the inciting incident is the event that gets your story going. It happens normally very early in the story, not necessarily at the very beginning, but fairly early on. And it's the catalyst that gets the story started. Now, if we combine this with Stephen King's theory that the story is there already fully formed, waiting to be dug up, what we can learn is that in the best stories, the very beginning of the story isn't disconnected from the inciting incident. In fact, it's leading to it. We can already see the pressure for the story building up and the inciting incident is the way to release that pressure. It's the gateway through to getting the story started and really working out what's happening. Now, as an example of this, just so you can see what I'm talking about, think about Harry Potter. Think about the first book in that series, Harry Potter and the Philosopher's Stone. The inciting incident in this book arguably is the point where Harry is accepted to join Hogwarts. Now, initially, it seems very unlikely that he's going to be able to get to Hogwarts because the family that are looking after him, the Dursleys, are very opposed to anything to do with magic. And they do everything they can to stop him. And so the pressure to resolve that situation builds up. And then we get the inciting incident. Harry is accepted and inevitably gets to go to Hogwarts. And incidentally, I'll be dealing with the inciting incident in an episode in a couple of weeks' time. So let's move on to the third way in which we can practically apply story theory to our work. Now, if Stephen King is right, and we are the literary equivalent of archaeologists, and our task is to get the fossil of the story out in as perfect a condition as possible, then we're going to have to spend a lot of time going at our story with fine brushes and toothpicks rather than a jackhammer. Stephen King hints at this when he says in his book on writing, to get even most of it, the story, the shovel must give way to more delicate tools, air hose, palm pick, perhaps even a toothbrush. I think the literary equivalent of these tools that he's talking about here is the hard work you have to put in at the review stage on your own and with beta readers and other critics. We've all felt the temptation to think that our story is really rather special a nigh on perfect and absolutely ready to go. And it just simply needs to be put in front of some editor who will no doubt see it for the brilliant art that it is. Sadly, we need to learn patience and pick up the toothbrush one more time. If you're wondering whether it's worth spending that time and effort on review, consider this comment from Gordon Van Gelder. Now, Gordon is the editor and publisher of the magazine of fantasy and science fiction. He says that one of the biggest reasons why he rejects stories is because they're not ready. They aren't polished enough. So here's the lesson, and I'm afraid it's a hard one for all of us. We need to work and work again at the story to get it reviewed, to get it refined. And when you think it's there, it may well not be. Now, if your answer to this is that you have no one with whom to share your stories, I suggest you check out one of the online critique websites. The one that I use is called Critters Critique. That's www.critters.org. Join up there, leave some reviews of other people's work and then add your own. So let's move on to our fourth and final lesson from story structure. And for this, we're going to go back more than 2000 years to our old friend Aristotle. He tells us that the best elements of story are unguessable before the reader knows them and then obvious or even inevitable once we do see them. But how can we develop these sorts of clever story elements? 
The answer is, when we're thinking of these elements in the story, we need to start asking questions. We ask questions about why such a thing might happen in our story, and we dig down and keep asking until we get down to the core truth, until we feel we really understand why such a thing would happen. Then, even if the idea seemed superficially unlikely or crazy, as long as it seems reasonable when we ask those deeper questions, then we have something worth putting into the story. Another way of putting it is to simply ask the question, if I really think about this, if I really think it through, does it make sense? If the answer is yes, then you have a story element that's not necessarily easily guessable, but with hindsight makes good sense. And if he were still with us today, Aristotle would probably give you his approval. Now, this concept is a bit of a brain stretcher, so I'll give you some examples. And I warn you, there are some significant spoilers coming up in the examples I'm about to give related to the Lord of the Rings, the Harry Potter series and the Hunger Games series. So if you really want to stay spoiler free with those stories, skip over the next couple of minutes. So first of all, in The Lord of the Rings, we know that Frodo carries the ring hundreds of miles with the purpose of throwing it into the cracks of doom and destroying it. And then, right when he's at the edge, right when he's finished his journey, suddenly he wants to keep it. Now, our immediate reaction might be surprise, it might be disappointment, but when we start to ask questions about this action, we can see why it happened. Why does he give in at this point? Why does the ring overwhelm him at all? Well, it's because it has a lot of power, but he's carried it all this way, so why now? One very obvious reason, because he's exhausted, but he knows this is the moment of victory. All he has to do is throw it into the cracks of doom. So again, why does he react like this? Because he is at last at the point where he has to make the decision. There's no more putting it off. The time has come. And so that is the point where he is most vulnerable and does indeed fail. Another couple of examples for you. First of all, in the Hunger Games series, in the last novel, Mockingjay, we're initially surprised and rather shocked to see Katniss turn her arrow not on President Snow, but on Al McCoyne. Why would she do this? Well, my thanks go to the Hunger Games Wikipedia team for giving us this analysis, which explains why. During the execution of President Snow, Katniss remembered the conversation she had with Snow and realised President Coyne was behind Primrose's death, along with the death of a great number of rebel medics. So instead of shooting Snow, she turned her single arrow from President Snow to Coyne and shot her instead. Now, in that story, we can see, with hindsight, why Katniss would act in this way. She's certainly not convinced that Coyne would would be any better as a leader, and she has vengeance on her mind. And from Harry Potter, we have another wonderful example of this in the form of Severus Snape, whose loyalties we're uncertain of all the way through the series. Is he loyal to the Dark Lord? He certainly seems to be, and as a compliment to that, he seems to be pretty good at making Harry's life a misery at Hogwarts. And yet, right at the end of the series, we see him for who he is, loyal to Dumbledore and implacably opposed to Voldemort. Why? For the simplest and most powerful reason. He does it for love, because he always has and always will love Lily, Harry's mother. In all these cases, the believability of the story element emerges when we ask questions and keep asking them, why does it happen? Why does something really happen? And if we can get to the true motivations of character, the real reasons why things happen, and at that point they seem plausible and explainable, then we can use that story element. So today we have explored four of the tools that can be derived from story theory. And in summary, these are one, that you introduce your story to the reader as if you were introducing yourself to somebody that you want to get on well with, that you're meeting for the first time. 
show off some of your best characteristics. And the literary equivalent of that is to show off some of the best aspects of your story. The setting, the characterization, the plot, the voice. Second tool, let the beginning of your story make your inciting incident seem plausible, even likely. Third, polish and refine your draft. Polish and refine that story so that it is as near to perfection, as near to what it was in Stephen King's terms when it was in the ground. And finally, to test a plot element, get to the root question that should explain it. And if that root question and its answer are reasonable, then that plot element will work, even if it seems just at first instance and at first glance to be rather surprising. So today I have referred to the following works. Poetics by Aristotle, which is definitely now in the public domain. Uh, The works of Gustav Freytag. Dramatica Theory, which you can find out more about at www.dramatica, that's D-R-A-M-A-T-I-C-A dot com. On Writing by Stephen King, published by New English Library. Story by Robert McKee, published by Reagan Books. I've also referred to Gordon Van Gelder, who is the editor and publisher of the magazine of fantasy and science fiction. And I've also quoted from Pride and Prejudice by Jane Austen, which is in the public domain. 1984 by George Orwell, published by Signet Classics, the Harry Potter series by J.K. Rowling, published by Bloomsbury, and the Lord of the Rings by J.R.R. Tolkien, published by Mariner Books, and the Hunger Games by Suzanne Collins, published by Scholastica Press. So that's it for this episode. I hope you found all of this helpful. As ever, if you have any comments, please do get in touch. I'm on Goodreads at the Creative Writers Toolbelt Group, and you can reach me by email at andrew at andrewjchamberlain.com also on twitter at writers toolbelt my thanks as ever to podcast themes for the music thanks to you for listening until next time goodbye